Let's turn to Mark chapter 1. I'm going to pick up where Joshua left off. So let's go to verse 21. At the same time, I'm going to, have, I'm going to take it to Capernaum. If you're taking notes tonight, if you can write down Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, that tells us that Capernaum uh, was the town of Jesus. That's Matthew 9, verse 1. I'm going to show you a bird's eye view of Capernaum. It's on the northern end of um, the Sea of Galilee. Okay. If you want to reference to Lake Winnebago, how many of you heard the explosion of the, of the house? Our house actually shook in Kukwana. Uh, we, I thought there was structural damage to the house, and Judy and I walked through every, every room to find out what had happened. And then we found out, of course, about the explosion. Well, this is on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. If Lake Winnebago would be the Sea of Galilee, then where this guy's house would be by Fire Lane 12, it would be somewhere in that general area. I'm sure they had to hear it across all the way down to Oshkosh because it, you know, it's just open. So what you're looking at is the actual size of the original a city of Capernaum. The next shot I want to show you is a synagogue. Now, when we read in verse 21 of chapter 1 of Mark, it says, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on a Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and talked. When I go to Israel, I tell people there's places that are um, an A spot where Jesus actually would have been. Capernaum, the city, is an A spot. But I can actually take you to that inside of that building because it's built on the foundation of a first century synagogue, which would have been during Jesus' time, and his, this verse that we just read here, he goes into the synagogue. This is an A spot. Jesus would have actually stood on this ground. And it's the only place that I, in all of Israel that I can say 100% sure Jesus stood in this place. So I'm just going to leave that up, let you look at it for a little bit. And um, let's read uh, section 21 through 28. I'm amazed how many times demon possession comes up in our study, and that's our verses right here. And verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. And there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Do you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. I'm going to pause and tell you a story because when I read this today, I had a flashback to 1973. It says here that the unclean spirit, when it came out, convulsed. In 1973, I was living in Oshkosh, new believer, and um, I worked for this little strange place that actually sold submarine sandwiches out of one of these um, little vans, basically. And I was at a, a blues concert as people were going in, they were buying subs, and um, like tonight, it began to rain in this Young couple came up, and um, it was raining. I said, hey, if you guys want to come in and sit in here until the rain stops, you can. So now they were a captive audience. <laughs> and I was witnessing to everybody and anybody, still do. And um, as I began to share the gospel, and I mentioned the name of Jesus, there was an immediate reaction with the girl. And all of a sudden, I looked at her eyes, and they were eyes that were full of hate towards me like I couldn't believe. And the Lord told me right there on the spot, this girl is demon-possessed. So I went out of my way to see what the reaction would be if I would use the Lord's name again. And so I says, you know, Jesus loves you. And then she went like this up and down her hand. She just went up and down like this. And when I said it the next time, she went from a standing position to a place on her knees, and she just looked at me. And um, one, of the, one of the gifts that I don't get to, 
who often, but it happened here. The Lord told me to ask her where she was in the occult. That's all I said. I said, where were you in the occult? She said, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Just immediately, just like that. And um, I was concerned. I didn't know if they were on drugs or whether or not this girl was really demon-possessed. So I look at her boyfriend who's standing right there. He's, he can't figure this out. He said, look, I don't want to freak you out if you guys are tripping or on drugs. And he says, no, we haven't done anything. I said, then your girlfriend is demon-possessed. And I closed up shop. This would have been early on a Saturday night. I was going to the First Assembly of God at that time on Elmwood Street next to the Pain Art Center. It was a Saturday evening. I don't know why I thought the pastor would be there, but as we were driving up, he was walking out of the church. His name is Peter Cashel. And I said, Pete, this girl is demon-possessed. He didn't think twice about it. He said, bring her in. And I'm telling the story because of what happened next. He laid hands on this girl and commanded that the spirit come out, just like right here. And she began to convulse. And she began to groan and mourn. And it was a resistance. And I'm watching this whole thing. And finally, with the convulsing, um, all of a sudden she melted into this pool of peace that was there. Her boyfriend that's watching all this raises his hands and gets saved on the spot. The girl, I followed her around for a couple of years trying to keep up with her, got radically saved that night, went into ministry, and I lost touch with her over the years. I only tell you the story because most of you have heard it, uh, but for some of you newcomers, maybe you haven't heard that story before. But we're going to read a lot tonight about demonic activity because here in the synagogue, in the church, yeah, in the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean spirit. And so verse 27, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And immediately, and again, this is going to be the reoccurring phrase for Mark's gospel, and immediately. You're gonna read it over and over again. We'll read it at least three or four times tonight as I try to get through one through three. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now in verses 29 through 31, we read, Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon, that would have been Peter, and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's here, his name is Peter. He was married, uh, and his wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, here it is again, and immediately the fever left her, and she felt so good, instead of being taken care of, she gets up and begins to serve them. So we know that Capernaum was the Lord's hometown when he was in the Galilee. Um, We know that Peter, James, and John came from um, Capernaum in this area. And his fame now is beginning to spread in verses 32 through 39. It says, now at evening when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and all those who were, here it is again, demon-possessed, And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And then he healed many who were sick with various diseases. Notice again, casting out many demons. And then he qualifies it by saying, and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now again, if you're taking notes, Colossians 1 says that the Lord created all things, whether they're powers or principalities, things visible, things invisible, They were all created by the Lord. So when it talks about powers and principalities, things that are visible and things that are invisible, Jesus created them all, including these demons. Several Sundays ago, we did a whole study, um, the history of demons, where they came from. They were a part of the fall of Lucifer, 
as he deceived Eve in the garden. So Revelation chapter 12, if you're taking notes, tells us that one-third of the angels rebelled with him. Some of these angels are so powerful, if you go to the book of Jude, verse six, it says that these spirits, some of them are so fierce, are incarcerated until the day of judgment. And that can mean one of two things. It can mean that, um, as the Bible says, someday you're gonna judge angels. And we find that in the middle of the tribulation, Revelation chapter nine, that a key to the bottomless pit is open and some of them are let loose. So it could be that they're kept in chains until the middle of the tribulation, or it could mean that um, they're not gonna be released until they're judged, and they go from that to the lake of fire. So, in verse 34, because they knew him, they knew him, because the Lord had created them. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, <clears throat> he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and when they found him, they said to him, everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, let us go into the next town, that I may preach there also because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee, and notice again, and casting out demons. Peter here, um, this is Peter's gospel, Mark is writing it, but we haven't read, what, not even 20 verses yet, and how many times has the Lord talked about uh, demons and demon possession. But he, one of the reasons that he commanded them to keep silent was because of the crowds, and we're gonna see that when we get to chapter two. But let me just um, talk about the importance of taking a day off and getting away to a quiet place. Um, you know, in, in wintertime, uh, we like to uh, go down to Arizona. Actually, if we don't leave here and go there, there's always something that needs to be done, <laughs> always. But when I'm down there, I'm sort of off the grid. And every day, I go walking at Lost Dutchman State Park, which is in the desert, and it's away. And I have some of my best quiet times that I ever have, ever, and I look forward to it. Now, the reason I'm saying that is some of you are too busy, and you need to get away to a quiet place and recharge your batteries just to be still and just listen to the Lord. If the Lord needed it, (laughs) how much more do you and I need to get away from time to time, find that quiet place where you can be still enough to hear the Lord's voice. In verses 40 through 45, we have a change of thought, and we're going to talk about a man being healed of leprosy, which was uncurable in those times. Verse 40. Then a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. The word was out that the Lord was healing everybody, and including that having authority over demons. And it says the Lord was moved with compassion, put out his hand and touched him, and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. And the leper was cleansed, but I want to stop a moment and just um, give you a little bit of what, when the Lord had compassion on him, um, one doesn't touch, first of all, a leper. You have to go around saying, unclean, unclean, if you're around any people at all. I imagine um, nobody could touch him. I imagine his family brought out the food and a drink for him, left it, and after they had left, he would come and get it. He probably would wave to them, but he could never come up to them again. He could never hold them in his arms, never touch them. But now the Lord touches this man, and by doing so, defiles himself, supposedly, but instead, the leper is immediately cleansed. And so we read in verse 42, 
as soon as he has spoken, there's the word again, immediately, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed and he was strictly warned and sent him away at once. And he said to him, now see to it that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing of those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. There's actually, in the law, provisions for miracles. Leprosy was not curable. But yet in the law, in the day of a leper's cleansing, you would have to go show yourself to the priest. He would examine you. He would set you in quarantine for seven days. Then he would come and look at you again, and he would check you out, and if you were still not showing signs of leprosy, he would declare that you were clean and you could once again live in a community. That's why the Lord said here, go show yourself to the priest. Um, the things that, man, uh, that Moses was commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every quarter. Now, um, it's funny, the Lord told them, don't tell anybody about me. And what does he do? He goes out and he tells everybody about him. What does the Lord tell us to do? He tells us to tell everybody. Good place for an amen. <laughs> he tells us to tell everybody but many times we don't. Many times we're afraid. What are people going to think? We're going to find out in the next chapter here that his family thought he was crazy. And um, we hold our tongues. Here's a, here's a man that was, was cleansed and set free. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. Don't tell anybody. The crowds are already too big. And so he goes out and tells everybody. Now the Lord tells us directly. Make sure you go into all the world and tell Everybody, everybody you run into, whenever you get an opportunity. Our lives should be looking for that crack, that open door, where you can steer the conversation, do a little fishing, if you will, and um, find out if a person is open. Or ask them if you can pray for them. Um, Mel and Linda, I know you're back in Arizona, and I know you're watching right now. Mel, the only reason I did that is Mel witnesses to everybody wherever he goes. <laughs> and uh, for those of you who know him, you know that he does that and he's always equipped with some equipment. And um, um, so it's, it's a good exhortation for us. The one who was told to keep quiet tells everybody and the Lord has given us a great commission and we should be looking for our opportunities. Another good place for an Amen. Okay, let's go into chapter two. And again, he entered Capernaum. Okay, there's Capernaum. That's the synagogue in Capernaum, a real A site. And he heard, and it was heard that he was in the house. There's a word again too, immediately. Verse two. Many gathered together so that there was no room to receive them, not even to the door. God bless you. And he preached the word to them, and they came to him, um, bringing a paralytic who was carried by his four friends. So here's a guy that's paralyzed. He's a paralytic. And they want to get him to Jesus, but nobody can get to the house because they want their friend to be able to walk again. And verse four, when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Now, this had to be something. Um, The Lord's in the middle of teaching. All of a sudden, (laughs) here comes this guy down and uh, being let down through the roof, and, you know, it pretty much interrupts the Bible study. And Jesus saw their faith, And he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiving you. Now, if I'm one of his buddies that's bringing him there, 
I'm not interested in that so much. We didn't bring him here to have his sins forgiven. We brought him here so that you would touch him and he could walk again. And some of the scribes who were sitting there reasoned in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemy like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Yes, that's the point. Who can forgive sins except God? And immediately, there it is again. And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus with them himself, he said to them, now he's talking to um, uh, those that were upset thinking this was blasphemy. He says, what do you think? Is it easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and take up your bed and walk? And the answer to that question is, you can, it would be easier to say your sins are forgiven. How can you, how can you know? How do you know for sure? Maybe they're still there, maybe they're not. It would be harder to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Everybody knew this man, his friend certainly did. So that would be a bona fide miracle. But that you may know, verse 10, that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your bed, and go on home. And immediately, are you getting the flow? And immediately, he arose, took up the bed, went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we've never seen anything like this before not in the hometown of Capernaum. And now his fame is spreading, and we're gonna get introduced now to a tax collector. His name is Levi. He was of the tribe of Levite. He was, would have been a Levite. So in verses 13 through 17, and he went again by the sea, and all the multitudes came with him. And he taught them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it happened as he was dining in Levi's house that many tax collectors and sinners sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and they followed him. Now this annoyed um, the scribes and the Pharisees, that he would go in and have a meal. The reason that there's only other tax collectors and sinners there is the way that a tax collector would receive his payment from collecting Roman taxes is by not only getting what they owed, but try to get as much as they could because that's how they received their pay. So they were despised and hated And so everybody that's your friend, they would have been friends who would have not had any friends except other tax collectors and people of evidently questionable character, we read here. And so verse 16, when the scribes and the Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now the irony of it here is the one that really needed saving was the self-righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Levi, the irony of this is that he became, he was a Levite, he was a Jew, and he became a publican. Now, in verses 18 through 22, uh, we're going to talk about the Hebrews' roots movement in just a a moment here and how it's making inroads into the church. I got a paragraph I got off the internet today to explain what it is if you're hearing that for the first time. I'm going to be addressing that after I talk about this, and that is the parable of the cloth and the wineskins. So let's read verses 18 to 22. And the disciples of John and of the Pharisees, they were fasting, and they came and they said to him, why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? So Jesus said to them, 
Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. He's talking about Jesus when he would ascend into heaven. And then they will fast in those days. And then he says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine bursts the wineskins and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But the new wine must be put into new wineskins. The Lord is giving two illustrations about this new life of love and fellowship with him. He is saying that he did not come to polish up the law. He did not come to add to the Mosaic system. He did not come to add a refinement or a deployment to it. He came to do something new. He didn't come to patch up an old garment, but to give us a new garment. Under the law, I'm going to be talking about the Hebrew Roots Movement, and that's exactly what it's about, going back to the law. Under the law, men worked, and their works were like old moth and garments. Our Lord came to provide a new robe of righteousness that comes down unto a sinner who will simply trust Jesus alone for his salvation. At least three of the songs tonight were about grace and the importance of grace. And we're told you can't have it both ways. If it's grace, then it's grace. But if it's works, then it's works. The two will never meet. It doesn't mean that you won't have good works. Matter of fact, when you're, you're saved, you're sort of like the leopard. You, you want to tell people. And you want to share your faith because of what the Lord has done for you. So this new garment is the garment of our righteousness, uh, the Lord's righteousness on us. This will enable him to stand before Almighty God. This is the glorious, wonderful thing that he is saying here. Our Lord didn't come to extend or project the law of the Old Testament system of a religion. He came to introduce something new. And that which is new will be the fact that he will die for the sins of the world. New wine goes into new wine skins. A new garment goes on to a new man who's been born again. That a robe of righteousness comes down on one who through faith has become a son of God and simply believes the gospel. And when you understand that, something interesting happens. If you take yourself out of the equation and you think that you have anything to do with your your salvation, I guarantee you'll blow it somewhere because you simply can't do it. But if you realize that you're put out of the equation and it's a work that only Jesus could do, apart from any good works, and we believe that, something happens in here. You realize that you can't make it on your own, and so this becomes grateful. And it says in the New Testament, there's one thing that we can offer to the Lord. We can offer the sacrifice of praise. That's why worship is so important. And you'll never really truly understand grace You'll, you'll know that you're born again when you understand grace and you just become grateful. You just become grateful. And you say, thank you, Lord. And uh, you actually, from time to time, will say, praise the Lord, just like that. And it'll be as natural as breathing air. And you mean it. And, but it only comes when you accept the new wineskin. And the new wine won't be put in old. The new wineskin is that garment of salvation that can only come by the grace of God. Another good place for a amen. Immediately. (laughs) All right, let's talk about the Sabbath now. Verse 23 to 28. Now it happened that as they went through a grain field on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the grains of, uh, of wheat, And the Pharisees said to him, look what they do. It's not lawful to work on the Sabbath day. But he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and hunger? This would have been when Saul was after his life. And Jonathan warns him and says, David, you better get out of Dodge because my dad is after you and he means to kill you. 
And so he goes to, uh, verse 26, and he went into the house of God in the days of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. So what Abathar does here, the high priest, is only a priest could eat this bread. It would have been in the temple. And, um, but he gave it to David and to his men. And um, he says, you guys, haven't you ever read that story about David? What he did was unlawful. But then in verse 27, he said to him, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, the idea of taking a day and just doing nothing is a good idea. It is actually made for you, but it's not a requirement. I mean, they've taken this to an extreme in Israel on a Sabbath day in the, in the Orthodox community. If you're in a hotel, they have a special elevator called the Sabbath elevator because you can't touch any of the buttons because it's a, it's a work to touch the button, so you can't push it. So this elevator, you don't want to take it because it stops automatically at every floor. When the door is open, you've got to wait, go up to the next one. But if you're Orthodox, you'll be, you'll be on the Jewish You'll be on the sabbatical <laughs> elevator uh, because they, they keep the law. Well, the Lord's saying, you're, you're, you're missing a forest for the trees here. That's not why the Sabbath was given. It wasn't a requirement in the law, but it was actually given for you. It said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But they turned it into a religious requirement. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. And if my disciples want to pick grain and rub it in their hands and chew on it like a, um, it's sort of a gummy substance and uh, actually not bad tasting at all. And he said, if they want to do that on the Sabbath, they have every right to. Chapter three. Oh no, I want to talk about, um, as long as we're here, <clears throat> uh, for those of you who haven't heard the Hebrew Roots Movement, it's... Um, I'll just read the paragraph that, I, that Mary got for me off the internet today. The Hebrew Roots Movement and Jewish Roots Movement. The modern Hebrew-Jewish Roots Movement is not simply gearing our studies of the Bible to connect Christianity with the Jewish mindset to better understand Scripture and its setting. Rather, this large and growing movement insists that we must resurrect first-century Judaism our Jewish roots, and lifestyle of first century Jews and impose them on both Jewish and non-Jewish believers. It is supposedly a movement of restoration that claims that the church has moved off its Jewish foundation and must return to a more Jewish way of life to be authentic. Those who teach this movement insist we must keep the Torah and worship on Saturdays only, that the reading of the Torah and keeping of, of the law and commandments is a way of salvation. Many deny the Trinity, and there is a sense of spiritual superiority among adherents that they have found the only true Christianity, and that the Christianity of today has been polluted with Greek and Roman philosophies. It's not first century Christianity at all, but more resembles the rabbinical tradition from centuries later. The truth is they are Judaizers who teach another gospel contrary to the biblical gospel of salvation, which is a combination of Jesus plus the law is necessary. Now this is what the first big, if you're taking notes, Acts 15, the first big thing that had to be dealt with is what are we gonna do with these Gentiles that are getting saved? Um, Some of the strict, by the way, every Christian up to Cornelius and all the disciples of the early church, they're all Jewish, all of them, until Cornelius gets saved. And so if you're taking notes, Acts chapter 15, James is the elder, and um, understanding that God was pouring out his Holy Spirit on the Gentiles, and um, basically wrote a letter and saying no, 
Um, if it's by grace and God is pouring out his Holy Spirit on Gentiles and they're getting saved, we're not going to put any other requirements on you. And so it also says if you're going to keep the law, you have to keep all of it. And you have to keep all of it perfectly. Later on, we'll read the real reason for the law. It's a tutor. It tells us that the law is a tutor. It's like a mirror. You look in the mirror and you see that you need to shave. And the reflection comes back and it says, you don't look good. <laughs> and there's nothing you can do. But it, it's a reflection. And that's what the law does. The law is a reflection. It's a tutor that shows us just how far we have fallen. Some of them are saying, well, I've kept the law. I've never committed adultery. The Lord says, fair enough. Have you ever looked at a woman with lust? Every person here busted. And if you say otherwise, you're lying. So not only are you a liar, (laughs) so he says if you've committed lust in your heart by looking at a man or a woman with lust, you have committed adultery in your heart. And so we're all all guilty. So to say that we're to keep the law, this is what the the bottom line with the, the Jewish roots movement is all about. And they don't know their Bible very well. That's what I'm saying. All right, let's go on to chapter three. And he entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. And he watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. This would have been in this building right here that you're looking at, up on the screen. So this is when we give Bible studies there. Whoever gives the study at at this particular spot, a lot of times they'll use this, Mark 3, as their, their teaching Verse three, and he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they wouldn't say anything. They kept silent because they wanted to to set him up and trap him. They knew that when the Lord walked in that room, he would scan the crowd and he would look and he would see the one with the greatest need and that's where he would go. So he saw the guy with a withered hand like this. And he went up to them. And um, verse 5, so when he had looked around at them, I have this underlined, and you should underline it. He looked at them with anger. Huh. How many times are you gonna, do people actually think that the Lord would actually have a look of anger on his face? And being grieved by the hardness of their heart. I can just see the Lord. Just try to picture that in my mind. He just looks over at these guys and he scowls at them. And he was grieved because here's a guy who's had a withered hand his whole life. And the Lord has every intention of healing him. But he was sure upset that this was just a setup. They were there just to trap him. They could care less about this guy. And he looked at them with anger. You know that it's okay to be angry? Yeah. Many times you should be angry when we're not. The Bible says you can be angry, but you can't sin. So it says be angry, but sin not. So the Lord was angry because they were so hard-hearted and indifferent towards this man who'd never been able to use his hand. So when he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. I'd love to see that one happen. Right in front of your eyes? First time you could go like that for the first time? I'm sure he was just doing a whole range of motion thing. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Then the Pharisees went out. How'd they go out? Immediately. And they plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Well, they had had it. They'd seen enough. They're losing their position. They're losing their place. They're not listening to the religious leaders. They're listening to this new message. And this man who can cast demons out of people. But Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea 
And it says, a great multitude from Galilee followed him and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon, these would be cities on the Mediterranean, a great multitude, when they heard how many things he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples that a small boat should be kept ready for him because of the multitudes, lest they should crush him. Need a getaway car in case we gotta get out of here. For he healed many so that as many had Afflictions pressed upon him to touch him. And here it is again. And the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out saying, you are the son of God. They knew him. They knew him before they fell. Now they know him as disembodied spirits. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. And he went up into the mountain and he called to those he himself wanted and they came to him. And then he appointed 12 that they might be with him, that he might send them out to preach and to have power to heal sicknesses and cast out demons. And we're told the first one is Peter, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, Simon Peter. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, of whom he gave the name Boragenges, or whatever, what it means, interpretation, is sons of thunder. We read in other places that the Galileans, there's a, when they're telling that Jesus came out of, of um, the Galilee, says, could anything good come out of Nazareth? Could anything good come out of this region? They were known for being hotheads in those on, on the Galilee. So here, James and John are called sons of thunder. Why? Because they were hotheads. They were short fuses. And they blew their wicks easily. So the Lord gave them the name sons of thunder. These are the same two guys that set up mom to... Say, Lord, when we enter your kingdom, let, let James sit on your right hand and let John sit on your left hand. They put their mom up to do that. And all the disciples heard it, so that caused division because they were trying to um, connive themselves into a position. That's, that was their nature. That was their character. Now, that should be encouraging to you and me <laughs> that the Lord uses the most unlikely of instruments to do his work. Matter of fact, it says he chooses the foolish things of the world on purpose to confound the wise. Say, well, obviously it couldn't have anything to do with him. He didn't even go to college or whatever. He didn't even go to any training. When Peter and John, in the book of Acts chapter four, heals the guy that was begging for money, he says, John looked at him and says, silver and gold we don't have, but we'll give you what we do have. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. So that guy that was there every day, everybody knew who he was, begging alms as you go into the temple. All of a sudden, they look at him, and he's up and walking. And the scribes and the Pharisees said they noted that they were men uneducated. And then the next thing it says, but they took note that they had been with Jesus. So let's uh, continue. Sons of Thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him, and they went into a house. And the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. Now notice verse 21. But when his own people heard about it, they went to get him, to lay hold of him, for they said, he's crazy, he's out of his mind. Do you know that some of your family thinks you're crazy, that you are out of your mind? (laughs) Oh yeah, when you're not around, they're talking. Don't go around him, He's, he's just crazy. Well, if it was, I think we made a big point on this on Sunday, how he was, um, 
uh, rejected by his own, and that your real family is um, a lot of times um, those that are your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's where, we, that's where we go next to here. In verse 22, and the scribes came down from Jerusalem and said, well, he has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons he casts out demons. This was actually our text a couple weeks ago. And so he basically said to them in this parable, what you guys are saying makes no sense at all. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. So what he's saying is, you guys, that doesn't make any sense. A house is divided, and if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but has an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds a strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, All sins will be forgiven by the Son of Man and whatever blasphemies that he may have uttered. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. I'm going to read that again. He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never have forgiveness. In another one of the Gospels it says, not in this life or the life to come will it be forgiven. because they said he has an unclean spirit. So, the obvious question at this point is what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is simply this. When you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and it's presented, simply John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, I'm a whosoever, you're a whosoever, whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, if you say, well, I don't believe that. I believe that there are many ways to God. You've just committed, if you heard John 3.16 once in your life, you're held accountable to whom much is given, much is required. Now you're held accountable with the information that you've just received. And after hearing that, you reject it, you've just committed the only sin that can never be forgiven. Think it through. Jesus said, I've not come to destroy the law, I've come to fulfill it. And I just told you earlier that the law was given to bring us, as a schoolmaster, to grace. It shows us who we really are. So, when Jesus said, don't think that I've come to destroy the law, what did he tell the leper that was cleansed? What did Moses say? Go to the priest and show yourself and do what the law says to do. Jesus lived a perfect life. He lived, never thought, an impure thought. He was tempted in every way that you and I were. Remember, he was fully God, but also fully man. And he never sinned one time. He was perfect. That's what it means when it says he fulfilled the law. So he can now die in my place and in your place. And if I accept that free gift, it's the gift of God. It's grace. And as a result of the gift, then... Um, you'll be forgiven. Now, why we say that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven is because Jesus Christ is the only one who is qualified to die for your sins. And if you reject that, there is no other way because Jesus is the only one who ever lived a perfect life. So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Understanding the simple gospel and receiving it in any sin. Oh, Dwight, you don't know how much of a sinner I really am. No, I don't. But the Lord does, and he said every sin. And um, um, if you reject that, then you're held accountable for all your sins. That's what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. And that's why we say that you must be born again. By the way, why must you be born again? Because you must be born again. <laughs> That's what he told Nicodemus. A, a religious, righteous man who came to Jesus at night. And um, the Lord knew right where he was at. And he says, well, I know you come from God because of all the miracles that you're doing. I know you're from God. But the Lord cut to the quick. 
He knew what Nicodemus was there for a completely different reason. He, in his heart, was saying, you got something that I don't have and I want it. How do I get it? So he cuts to the quick. He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Don't marvel. You must be born again. And um, all right, let's, let's finish it up. We're out of time. Then his brothers and his mothers, then his brothers and his mother came standing outside and sent to him calling him and a multitude was sitting around him and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he said to them, who is my mother or who are my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. So the real By the way, the point that we made, I think it was last Sunday, is none of his brothers and sisters believed on him until after the resurrection. They thought he was crazy. They came to rescue him, people from his hometown. Matter of fact, they hated him so much in in Nazareth, they tried to push him off that cliff. They wanted to kill him. But uh, he looked around in a circle at those who were about him and said, here are my mothers and my brothers, And whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and close in prayer. Lord, as we make our way verse by verse through the gospel of Mark, we see, Lord, that people that you told to keep quiet couldn't keep their mouth shut. And you've given us a charge to go into all the world and speak and Many of us have to admit we're guilty of being ashamed at times or afraid of what people actually think about us rather than being obedient to the Great Commission to go into all the world and tell everybody. And so, Lord, we pray for those opportunities. We pray you'd forgive us when, when you've told us to speak and we've, we've kept silent. Lord, help us be more concerned about what you think rather than what people may think of us. Because our family members, like we read here, came to rescue him because they thought he was crazy. And we realize that some will think that of us. Lord, let what you think about us be more important in our heart, in our mind. Lord, go before us the rest of this night. Again, in closing, we pray for those we want to have a compassionate heart, just like you had for that man in the synagogue. Uh, For the people in the way of this major hurricane in Florida and Georgia this night. And we just hold uh, them up to. There's many Christians that are being hit by the storm along with non-believers. So Lord, we just give you this evening. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.